0: Views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media.
1: Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Certain crimes are just so horrible that they shock the conscience. This is one of them. Skateboarding. The origin of this action sport dates back to the 1940s and early 50s. But its evolution has come quite a way since the first roller skate wheels were slapped onto a solid plank of plywood. Currently, skateboarding is a near $5 billion industry and now an official Olympic sport as of 2020. It is remarkable how this once counterculture has turned into what it is today, a worldwide phenomenon. But we rarely see serious crimes related to skateboarding, or at least not murder. See, before skaters were known as celebrities, they were outcasts, loners in fact. Usually the punk rock kids that didn't necessarily fit in or have any interest in more conventional activities such as baseball or football. But this story isn't about the growth of skateboarding. It's about a horrible crime that will unfortunately and forever be attached to its reputation during its insurmountable rise to the top. It's about what happens when a young, talented athlete goes pro and is thrown into a world of fame, riches, and the admiration of all, especially beautiful women. Most will respect, appreciate, and make the absolute best of the opportunities thrown their way in life, while others squander them and throw them away. We see the latter far too frequently with musicians, actors, and so on. Tragically, criminals more often than we'd like to believe selfishly will decide to take another life with them in the process. This is the exploration of one man's downfall, a new kind of rock star who soared to never before seen heights of success and who just as quickly would fall. When it was all over, in the blink of an eye, he lost control and professional skateboarder Mark Gator Rogowski would take his anger out on the most unsuspecting of victims. Let's go back, way back, all the way to 1973 to Escondido, California, just outside of San Diego. A boy by the name of Mark Rogowski had just moved from Brooklyn, New York to the West Coast with his mother. Seven-year-old Mark didn't remember his father. He left when he was only three. While trying to provide for her family as a single parent, Mark's mother allowed him to roam free and explore his surroundings. It was around this time that he discovered skateboarding and began frequenting the newly built park in his city. By the time Mark was 14 years old, he was already one of the best skaters in the area for his age, by far. He began making his way to the now renowned Del Mar Skate Ranch, a much bigger park on the beach with a massive concrete bowl, roughly 30 miles from his house. This is where Mark Rogowski would cut his teeth, quite literally, in fact. Skating with such speed and intensity, Photos can be found of a young Mark smiling through a mouthful of blood and a cracked tooth after a vicious slam. Vert and pool skating were all the rage at the time, and it just so happened to become young Mark's expertise. He was tough, aggressive, and had one of the most stylistic forms anyone had seen at the time. Before he was 15, he'd gone pro, becoming sponsored by companies such as Vans, GNS, and Gullwing Trucks. They called him Gator the skater, and he quickly became a hometown favorite. In 1982, at the age of 16, Gator took his skills out of San Diego, winning his first big contest, taking first place at a competition in Vancouver, British Columbia. He quickly began taking over the entire circuit and not just beating out the likes of any old pro on the vert ramp either. Mark Gator Rogowski was consistently in the top five, competing with names of future skateboard legends such as Christian Hussoy, Steve Caballero, and even Tony Hawk. Gator the skater was simply unstoppable. He was on course to be one of the biggest skateboarders of all time. Success came at him fast, and he was soon approached by a sponsor that would forever change his life, Vision Skateboards. Vision was founded by Brad Dorfman, who created the company solely based off of and inspired by Rogowski Skating. Needless to say, Gator became the team's first professional rider. He was surely on the rise, but his level of fame was about to reach a whole new plateau that was unimaginable to most teenagers during this era. You've got to remember before 1982, skateboarding was not always seen as such a cool thing to do. It was mostly made up of kids that felt alienated from their peers in one way or another. So when Vision Skateboards began putting out skate videos on VHS cassettes through a series called Skate Visions, a monumental shift in the culture took place. Pre-internet kids now had the ability to watch footage of their favorite skateboarders flying through the air, with Gator as the main focal point. The Skate Visions videos were pivotal in increasing the interest of youth that may not have otherwise been exposed to the sport before. And just like that, the Skate Star was born.
2: It should be a pretty good day out here. we got a lot of different guys from a lot of different areas, and it's kind of funny when you get a guy from Venice, you get a guy from Oceanside, and you get a guy from Riverside, you can certainly tell the difference in their forms and styles. And, you know, that's what what makes skating unique. Good luck. All right, thanks.
0: That's Mark in 1985, before his run at the Sure Grip Beach Style Contest in Oceanside, California. In the beginning, Gator was well-liked and seemed to take to his new fame gracefully. But this, of course, wouldn't last long. That very same year, he was featured on the cover of Transworld Magazine, one of the biggest skateboarding publications to date. He was now being treated like the Tom Cruise or Michael Jordan of skating, along with his peers, Hawk, Hasoy, and Caballero. They were a new type of celebrity, each drawing hundreds of fans to their events and demos. Not only were they well-known, but they were making a lot of money as well. Gator eventually became one of skateboarding's top earners around this time period. By 1987, Rogowski was earning $2 from every single skateboard deck he sold and Vision was selling roughly 7,000 of his pro models per month at roughly $40 each or $100 if they were sold as completes, which came with trucks and wheels attached. On top of all of the endorsements, hats, stickers, t-shirts, and more, with Gator's name on them, it's estimated that he was cashing in at approximately $14,000 every four weeks. In 2021, this would equate to roughly $30,000 per month. Not a bad gig for a teenager. But with Big Pockets came a big ego for Mark Rogowski. He was a handsome young man with an eclectic fashion sense, wearing garments from local thrift stores. He stood out on and off his board, and soon took on the persona of the bad boy of the skate world. And at a 1986 event called Mount Trashmore in Virginia Beach, Gator took his punk rock image to a new extreme. The event showcased some of the world's top professional skaters of the time. Police presence was in full effect as fans surrounded the 12-foot halfpipe in massive numbers, each hoping to catch a free skateboard or t-shirt thrown to the crowd from the various sponsors. Gator showed up fashionably late, just as Tony Hawk was in the middle of his run. Ragowski's presence alone drew the attention toward him at the gate as he arrived, but police wouldn't let him inside. He didn't have the necessary credentials to enter the event, even though he was literally the star of the show. The police didn't care who he was and wanted to see some form of identification. Gator became irate punching one of the officers square in the face. The crowd cheered as police and skateboarders notoriously have feuded since the sports inception. Naturally, Gator was arrested and placed in handcuffs before being hauled off to jail. Patrons at the event weren't happy. After all, the majority of them had paid their hard-earned money to attend the event to watch Gator skate. Fans then began throwing rocks at the police and the event quickly escalated into a full-blown riot. One would think this little stunt would have cost Mark Rogowski a lot of money, in addition to some of his sponsorships, or that it would have been a detriment to his career in some way. But it actually had the opposite effect. Cameramen from Thrasher magazine caught Gator assaulting the police officer on film and eventually featured the photographs in the print version of their next issue. This made Gator's popularity explode like never before. Not only was he currently the best skater around, but he was now the badass who punched cops to boot. He became every angsty and rebellious teenager's idol. This inadvertent publicity stunt worked wonders for Mark Rogowski's notoriety. If Gator was full of himself before, wait until you hear him in this interview, not long after the Mount Trashmore incident.
2: Well, I think I need to be interviewed not only because I'm one of the most elite and dynamic, talented, big-headed and uh, versatile skaters on the circuit, but also because I'm one of the most uh, blatant and outspoken jerks in the industry. It's, um, it's really easy to say what you want, what's on your mind and get away with it. You can always have a bad write-up in the local gossip column of Thrasher or, or, or Transworld and uh, receive some kind of uh, some kind of promotion or exposure from it, it's great. I love getting arrested. I think I'm one of the most uh, illegal skaters in the circuit too.
0: Interesting what a few autographs and a couple of big paychecks can do to a 19-year-old's self-image. But what's also interesting is the demographic in which skateboarding appealed to was starting to change. A lot more women and teenage girls began showing up at the events. Among these spectators were two young ladies by the name of Brandy McLean and Jessica Bergston. At a Phoenix, Arizona competition in 1987, 15-year-olds Brandy and Jessica arrived at the event, both hoping to meet pro skater Christian Hassoy. Mission accomplished. After some chatting, Hassoy decided to introduce the girls to Mark. Brandy and Jessica were both starstruck by Gator's charm, bright white smile, and his fit physical physique. Brandy, in particular, recalls meeting Mark as, quote, love at first sight. But what both Brandy and Jessica could never have known was that this encounter was the beginning of two relationships the pair would eventually wish never began in the first place. Brandy McLean was still in high school. And at 15 years of age, she was still living with her parents back in Arizona. After a weekend of partying with professional skateboarders, everyone would inevitably end up going their separate ways. But Gator and Brandy made sure to keep in touch. Mark began sending romantic letters and drawings to Brandy by mail, and the two eventually formed a long-distance relationship, while Gator continued on his path of becoming one of skateboarding's elite. The two spoke on the phone regularly as well. Whichever city Gator was in, he was sure to call Brandy, just to talk. And whenever Mark was back in San Diego, he'd fly Brandy out for the weekend. By the time she was 17, the two had fallen deeply in love. During one visit out to California, Gator eventually asked Brandy if she would move in with him. Smitten by the request, she leapt at the chance to live with her then-famous skater boyfriend. Rogowski was making the big bucks by this point. He was at the height of his monetary success and had the number one selling skateboard through Vision. He was regularly being flown to Japan to do demos, and with his earnings, he decided to purchase a half a million dollar home in Fallbrook, California. The modern circular architecture was extraordinary, built on an avocado grove just an hour north of the skateboarding hub of San Diego. The home Gator purchased also happened to be right next to Tony Hawk's property. Not a bad selling point. How could Brandy ever pass the opportunity up? It was the chance of a lifetime. So with that, she gathered her belongings and told her parents she was off to California, soon to begin the next phase of her new life with Mark Gator Rogowski. Tony Hawk ended up building a mega ramp on his land, and soon pro skaters were taking the trek out west to visit both Mark and Tony, and Fallbrook, California became the place to be. It truly was a remote and magical skateboarders paradise, but things would soon become not so heavenly for Brandy and Gator as their relationship soon began to devolve into a purgatory of sorts. Tony Hawk eventually sold his land after the ramp became destroyed and decided to move back into another property he owned in Carlsbad. After Tony Hawk left the visits from quote-and-unquote friends and fellow skaters became less frequent to Mark's house and he eventually became somewhat of a recluse, starting a new pattern of lashing out at Brandy over trivial disputes. Rogowski would go through intense behavioral swings and episodes, from being overly aggressive to extremely apologetic and remorseful for his actions. Eventually, no one wanted to take the hour drive north to see Mark, and he became extremely possessive over Brandy. He wanted to know where she was at all times, and didn't like the idea of her being anywhere but in the secluded groves of Fallbrook. Meanwhile, skateboarding as a sport was reaching its peak, and Gator was eating up all of the success.
2: Escape for vision, skateboards, going skateboard trucks, swatch watch, exile sunglasses, and vision streetwear. And I like skateboarding a lot. You know why I like skateboarding? Because it's the spiciest thing in my life. It's what makes me wake up in the morning. It really is what makes me breathe. It's what makes me... Sane, actually, you know, with all the crazy things going down in the world today, you read it in the media, you see it on the TV, it could just drive a man wild.
0: Gator sure was cocky, all right. But what young man thrust into this type of stardom wouldn't be? He began feeling as though he deserved it, especially when upwards of 5,000 kids began showing up to some of his professional demos. The competitions started looking more like an ACDC concert. Then skateboarding events. The 1988 Swatch Impact Tour was a great example of this transition. Here's Gator just before that event.
2: This is a Barishnikov ballet of skateboarding, where we brandished our boards on the um, on the ramp, baton style, just fully going for it. And it's choreographed. It's not a. It's not just a demo. Yeah. What are you going do tonight? We're going to rock the house to the live DJ traveling with us. We're going to enjoy the videos show. We're going to do our eight to two man choreographed routines in daredevil fashion. And we're going to have a whole heck of a lot of fun.
0: At one of the shows on this tour, there was said to have been over 8,000 people. Gator began wearing fedoras and Michael Jackson type gloves with the fingers cut off, making appearances, dancing on MTV 2 He was seen in photos with Cindy Crawford and he and his girlfriend Brandy appeared in Tom Petty's music video for Free Fallen. He was even a stunt double in the Christian Slater movie Gleaming the Cube, a neo-noir skateboard film with a plot eerily containing themes of revenge and murder. But more on that later. Nevertheless, things were getting out of hand. While these ventures may all sound like potentially promising business moves, the skateboarding community saw them as a joke. Sure, things were cool in the beginning, but like all things that become a little too mainstream, the purists eventually stopped buying. Vision skating events started to resort more to drama and theatrics than the art of skateboarding itself. It was moving farther into the limelight and away from the underground treasure that it once was. Soon, kids decided they weren't so into this new scene or direction the sport was taking. Brands like Vision that had the most money and biggest warehouses of merchandise soon became the most unappealing. They turned into the cheesy Hollywood brand, the antithesis of what skateboarding was supposed to be. Now if you wore Vision streetwear, you were made fun of. They were no longer cool, they were the sellouts in the eyes of the youth, and the youth dictate the trends. No fan base equals no sales, and so the numbers began plummeting almost out of nowhere, the company was dissolving and on the verge of bankruptcy. As a result, Mark Gator Rogowski would inevitably be left without his usual sizable paycheck. Not to mention he was the face of the biggest skateboard entity that was quickly going out of style. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job. And we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mark was under a great deal of pressure. He eventually sold his mansion in Fallbrook and moved into an apartment back in Carlsbad. He could feel that things were changing, and the walls of his world were simultaneously caving in around him. But it wasn't until 1989 that people began to see through the veneer of Gator's facade and learn who Mark Rogowski truly was. In an attempt to hide that fact, however, he changed his name, dropping Rogowski altogether. He'd now go by Mark Anthony. He claimed this was to rid himself of any remaining affiliation to his father, a man who hadn't been in his life since he was a small child. This still left those who knew Mark personally quite confused. They weren't sure if the name change was genuine or if it was another branding ploy. Perhaps an attempt to revitalize a fame, that was quickly waning. He also started acting extremely rude and dismissive towards fans. During one event while on an Australian tour, a young man asked Gator for an autograph. After refusing several times, he ended up punching the teenager in the face. This was the beginning of the end for Gator. When word spread of the incident, what was left of his residual board sales and Gator merchandise seemed to come to a screeching halt. The skateboard community as a whole was appalled. Gator was now known as the pompous dick that no one wanted to be around. But the worst was yet to come. Skateboarding was continuing to change. By the late 80s and early 90s, vert skating was on its way out and street skating was fresh on the scene. The two styles are completely different from one another, vert consisting of several twists and grabs in the air, while street was much more technical, involving flat ground flip tricks, ollies down stair sets, and grinds on ledges and handrails in urban city settings. The shape of the board itself was even changing. Companies like Vision were done and skaters like Mark Gonzalez decided to adapt. Several independent brands began to pop up. Teams like Blind, World Industries, and Black Label were all born the same year. This certainly proved it to be a successful maneuver as businesses like Thinkin' Toy Machine were soon to follow, all of which would become some of skateboarding's most successful enterprises. Everything was happening so fast. There were those able to alter their thinking and adapt and handle the change. And there were also those who couldn't.
2: I think one thing that's a lot better about street style than, than bull riding or, or half-pipe riding is that you don't have to do 540s to win.
0: Very true, but it did require professionals to learn new tricks in order not to fall by the wayside. Some vert skaters turned out to be some of the best street skaters. Mark Rogowski or Mark Anthony was not one of them. Gator is seen fumbling with his board in a parking lot, trying to do handstands and seems to be more fixated on incorporating dance moves into his tricks than practicing his heel flips. What would presumably be the simplest maneuvers for a pro skater were now completely foreign to Mark. He was right about one thing, though. He did suck, and he was laughed at as a result. He knew he wasn't good at this increasingly popular new style, and it angered him. He was ridiculed by his peers, and his fans were almost extinct. Ironically, the pro athlete who was once neck and neck with Tony Hawk for doing fakie 360 mute grabs couldn't even kickflip a 6-inch shopping mall curb. Mark was losing his identity. He was becoming more and more desperate and soon began abusing alcohol. After an event in Germany, Gator became blackout drunk off Jägermeister. He was traveling from one random hotel party to the next and at one point he reportedly tried to scale a second story terrace from the hotel's exterior. Some say he fell, others say he jumped willingly, claiming he could fly. Whichever the case, in a drunken stupor, Rogowski dropped two stories, landing directly atop a wired fence. He was almost killed. The rusty steel impaled his face, neck and ripped open his hand and arm. His thumb was nearly completely severed and hanging off and needed to be stitched back on entirely. He was rushed to a nearby hospital and when he was finally released, Mark spent several additional months recovering back in San Diego. He'd eventually undergo multiple reconstructive plastic surgeries, mainly attempts to salvage his so-called acting career. This event changed him, however. Those who knew Mark say he never was quite the same after the accident. While he was certainly the most self-absorbed he'd ever been prior to his fall, his actions now were becoming more bizarre than ever. After recovering from his injuries, Mark had met a man on the boardwalk along the beach in Carlsbad. His name was Augie Constantino. Augie was an ex-pro surfer who now spent his days walking up and down the beach preaching the word of the gospel to young adults, who he felt needed saving. Mark, a man down on his luck and at an all-time low in his life, was receptive. The two quickly learned that they had a lot in common with one another. Augie had been in a terrible, life-threatening accident himself years before, and attributed his survival to a divine intervention from God, which led him on his new path of teaching the word of Jesus to those in need. While this certainly was a change for the better in Augie's life, Mark took this concept to a different fanatical level. He soon began reading the Bible day and night, walking the beach with Augie, preaching to young skaters at the local 7-Eleven and skate parks each and every day from sunup to sundown. But even the impressionable young kids that once looked up to Gator thought this behavior was odd.
3: He like always like praying stuff and he brought like this preacher guy and they're like praying before he skates
2: and we we're just all Gator's freaking out. He's all of a sudden getting all too religious and stuff.
0: Rogowski was obsessed trying to convert those around him to become evangelical Christians like himself. Much to Mark's disappointment, no one seemed to take him seriously. Here was a guy who was known to party like a rock star, who once smoked weed and drank incessantly, who seemed to overnight become a born-again Christian. A lot of his friends simply wrote this behavior off as another one of Gator's antics, including his girlfriend, Brandy. He'd pass off handwritten letters to her, begging her to join him on his new pursuit of dedicating his life to God.
3: Please consider this letter sincerely and read it over, please. If you're amazed, blown away, shocked, be so amazed in the merch of the Lord, Brandy. He truly changed my heart. I almost can't believe it. Take heed in his word. May the Lord bless you and enrich your life. Love, Mark.
0: Brandy wasn't having any of it. The last straw was when Mark told her they could no longer have sexual relations and needed to wait until they were married. This change confused Brandy. They'd been sexually active for years during their relationship, and she wasn't ready for this sudden abstinent lifestyle that Mark was demanding of her. And with that, the two inevitably parted ways. Brandy found a new, handsome, younger surfer boyfriend and began moving on without Mark in her life. When he caught wind of this, however, he snapped. Suddenly, Mark wasn't acting like the model Christian he had so portrayed himself to be. He began stalking his ex-girlfriend, following her every move. He even found where her new boyfriend lived and somehow obtained the home's landline phone number. He'd call the house, threatening him as well as Brandy on a regular basis. At one point, Mark had even broken into Brandy's mother and stepfather's home in Canyon Lake, California, where they'd recently moved to from Arizona. He climbed through a window and stole every material gift he'd ever given Brandy. This included a car he'd bought for her that was parked out in their driveway. Brandy tried to reason with Mark among their intense arguments, and the two eventually agreed to meet up to hash things out. In December of 1990, Mark picked Brandy up at her parents' house, but before they even left the driveway, he began screaming at her, berating her from the top of his lungs. Brandy couldn't seem to get a word in edgewise, but the next thing out of Mark's mouth would make her fear for her life.
3: Do you know what? I should take you out to the desert right now. I should drive you out right in the middle of the night and beat the shit out of you and leave you there, and I would get away with it, because everybody would know that you deserved it.
0: Brandy would escape this incident unharmed, eventually making it out of Mark's vehicle and back into her parents' home. Yet she took his threats to heart. Brandy had no idea what this man might do next, and she wasn't going to wait around to find out. It wasn't long after this incident that Brandy fled California for New York City to get as far away from Mark as she possibly could. She didn't tell anyone she was leaving, not even her family. This only infuriated Mark further. With no way to contact Brandy, no direction in his own life, and a skateboarding career that was virtually non-existent his anger began to fester. He continued to preach the word of God with Augie on the beach until he received a phone call a few months later. It was Brandy's good friend, Jessica Bergston, who he'd met years before in Arizona. Jessica had just moved to San Diego and was looking to make new friends and be introduced to the local scene. So she reached out and asked Mark Rogowski to show her around. Wednesday, March 20th, 1991. After answering an unexpected phone call from Brandy McLean's longtime friend, 22-year-old Jessica Bergston, Mark Ragowski decides to meet her for lunch. Jessica and Mark were seen later that day at an Italian restaurant in La Jolla, a seaside neighborhood in San Diego, not far from Mark's Carlsbad home. The two eventually went back to his place, where they were seen by a neighbor entering the apartment with wine and movies in hand. Mark struggled with the temptation of drinking the wine. He was, after all, a born-again Christian, but he eventually gave in. The two spent the night together, and the following day on March 21st, Mark left the apartment, but he was alone. A couple of days passed by, everything seeming normal, but no one had heard from Jessica. Mark went about his usual routine of spreading the word of the Lord by the beach, while friends tried to reach out to him to ask if he had heard from the now-missing woman.
3: I had called Gator once I found out and asked, you know, left a message on his machine, you know, have you seen Jessica, give me a call, you know, whatever. But that was it. He never called me back. I called him a couple times, but he never
0: called me back. Mark stopped returning phone calls and the tape on his answering machine was filling up. When asked in person, he brushed it off each time and didn't seem to know anything. Then, about a week after the two had spent the night together, a missing persons alert went out for Jessica. Police caught wind that Mark may have been one of the last people to see her. So he was eventually questioned, but that was it. He wasn't investigated any further. By this point, Brandy was extremely upset. She hadn't talked to Jessica in a while, and even before this, didn't know that she had moved to San Diego. Mr. Bergston, Jessica's father, traveled from Arizona to San Diego to hang up posters of his daughter himself, trying to find any clue of where she might be. One of those flyers made it to the front door of the local 7-Eleven, where Mark and Augie regularly loitered, reading Bible passages to teenagers. A few weeks later, a young woman wearing a miniskirt walking by the storefront crossed Augie and Mark's path. Augie yelled toward the woman, Go and put some clothes on when you come back, I'd like to talk to you about Christ. The girl ignored him, responding only with something to the effect of,
1: I've got nothing to worry about. I've
0: got no problems. Augie then pointed to Jessica Bergston's missing persons flyer. What about that girl? She had nothing to worry about, but where is she now? She could have been involved in drugs, pornography. Maybe she's dead. The young woman was annoyed. She got in her vehicle and quickly drove off. Augie turned to see Mark's reaction to the situation, only to find his friend silent, periodically studying the flyer on the storefront's glass window. Missing person Jessica Bergston. Date of birth 42769. Five feet eight inches tall, 115 pounds. Blonde hair, blue eyes, fair complexion. If you have any information, Please call the San Diego Police Department. Augie remembers this striking some sort of chord in Mark. Perhaps Augie believed Mark was simply moved by his powerful message. The two men eventually carried on, continuing to read scripture aloud out of the Bible to anyone who would listen. And that was that. Life seemed to carry on for Augie and Mark like nothing ever happened. That is until almost two months later when an ATV rider came across something suspicious out in the desert on Wednesday, April 10th, 1991.
3: The
1: victim was Jessica Bergston, who moved to San Diego just weeks before her body was discovered
3: April 10th by a young boy who was riding his four-wheeler in the desert. A neighbor remembers last seeing the victim with this man, skateboard pro Mark Anthony.
0: Skeletal remains were found in a shallow grave in the Shell Canyon Desert, a few hours west of Carlsbad, along the California-Arizona border. Due to the harsh elements, the remains were completely unrecognizable, but police were able to pull prints off the body. They were able to match records to those of an individual found in an Arizona juvenile database. That individual, tragically, turned out to be Jessica Bergston. while not under any true suspicion by police, Mark eventually was either so ridden with guilt or simply afraid that his time was running short that he broke down and confessed to his quote, spiritual advisor, Augie Constantino of his sins. He reportedly said to his friend, quote,
3: remember that girl from the poster? She was the one I killed.
0: The two friends prayed together. They begged God for forgiveness. For Augie convinced Mark to turn himself in to police. Mark would eventually do just that, and Augie Constantino drove him to the Carlsbad police station... ...where he would willingly confess to the murder of 22-year-old Jessica Bergston. Between a series of interviews between Sergeant Richard Castaneda and Detective Don Dieter... ...Mark Rogowski would lay out the bizarre motive and gruesome details of the murder. We have obtained the case files from those interviews... The following is a voiceover of those exact transcripts, which have been shortened and summarized for the purpose of comprehension. Please be warned, the description of Mark Rogowski's confession is extremely graphic and violent in nature.
3: About a week before this happened with Jessica, I went into the estates of the gated community where Brandy lives and, um, and I went to her house with the intention of killing her and i knocked on her door but nobody was home i was gonna kill brandy that day
1: about a week prior to this happening
3: yeah about a week uh-huh and everything that i hated about brandy i hated about jessica what did you hate about brandy well brandy was uh my on and off lover for about three years and i was helping her with her finances and finding a car and a job these things and giving her a loan and doing a lot of things for her and kind of really sinking all my heart into a full relationship you know everything i had i soon found out by some investigating that i did on my own that she was having a sexual romance with uh, another guy in my area in del mar everything i ever felt any love that we'd ever had was just totally desecrated you know completely obliterated I had weird thoughts about killing my girlfriend, Brandy, because of the revenge that I had for her cuz I loved her and she was having an, a, you know, a sexual relationship with somebody behind my back. But the, sh- the strange thing is I I don't know why that I actually acted on it. I mean, I can have those thoughts, you know. Right. But I don't know why I acted on it. Okay. And I did. It was crazy. I don't think I had planned to do that before. Maybe I...
1: But do you see that's what happened? That the revenge was taken on this
3: girl? I think, yeah. It was It was a byproduct of my feelings from my the broken relationship. I didn't even like her. Okay. I actually, from the beginning, I was just being nice. Because she said that she didn't know anybody. And that she was, you know, hurting for friends. I knew she had been in some drugs and some alcohol problems and stuff. And she just sounded like somber, just really kind of like hurting for friends, so. Okay. I think she was totally enamored by me the whole time and she just expressed that she really wanted to see me and that she just couldn't believe how neat I was after all these years. And that she heard about me, that she was glad that Brandy and I had broken up, that, that she's so glad to get to know me. I just, I had a really bad hate and hurt inside of me. Against Jessica?
0: Against actually just Brandy. This is where Mark Rogowski begins to explain that the rage taken out on Jessica Bergston was actually misplaced hatred, which he had been harboring for his ex-girlfriend. His logic here is nothing short of terrifying.
3: But see, the thing is, Jessica was the mold that Brandy was made out of, basically, because she was older than Brandy, and she influenced her heavily at first, you know? It was basically Brandy with a different body, but that same personality and everything.
1: Okay. That's understandable. I mean, with that much rage...
3: Well, I told her. I told her. I said, everything that you are, I despise. I hate you, and I hate everything that you stand for. You're a slut, and you're a boozer, and you're just... you're an addict. And... and you made my girlfriend what she is today. You Uh know, by your influence, and your upbringing, and... and you act the same. Everything.
1: I think I understand it. it. It really bothered you that she had such an influence on
3: your, your old girlfriend? Well, at one time, yeah.
0: Mark Rogowski then tells the detective the exact events leading up to Jessica's murder.
3: We watched the movies. We drank some wine and around 12 or maybe even later, maybe it was one o'clock in the morning, we decided that I was going to drive her back home. I muscled her. At that point, something came over me. I don't know what it was, but I just physically bound her and uh, tied her up so she couldn't move. I hit her. I hit her in the head with with a bar so that she was stunned and she she didn't know what was going on. I, I took her upstairs and uh, I guess I had sex with her. And-
0: While Jessica was sitting on Mark's living room floor, putting her shoes on and getting ready to leave, he came up from behind her and then struck her over the head.
3: We stayed up all night. I didn't know what my intentions were. I didn't know what I was doing. She asked me to let her go and I, I didn't want to let her go. So she kept. What did you strike her with? Um, a steering wheel lock. The male portion of it. The one they call the club? Yeah, the club. The male portion of that device.
0: Mark hit Jessica with a metal steering wheel lock a common security device from the 1990s
1: Did you use your hands at all
3: No no
1: Where was the uh the instrument the club where was it located
3: Well it was in my car
1: Did you go out and get it or or was it already in your house or
3: Well when I decided to do it when we decided to leave I said wait a minute I've got to go get something out of my car and I I don't know why I went down there I guess I was checking to see if I had all my, like, driver's license and stuff or something, but I don't know why I went down there. But when I did, all of a sudden I got this... I I went back up the stairs and I just started just wailing on her.
0: Do you know about how many times?
3: Probably three good hits.
0: After Mark knocked Jessica semi-unconscious, he dragged her defenseless body up to his bedroom, where he proceeded to rape her for several hours
3: she was begging me and getting louder and making noise and I uh, so I, I put her inside of a surfboard bag and closed it and and I zipped it up, and she was having trouble breathing, so I got on top of her and I compressed my hand over her mouth through the bag through the surfboard bag and she couldn 't breathe anymore and i 'm pretty sure she died right about then. It was about five o'clock in the morning and that same day, I, uh, well, when it began to be light, I didn't go to sleep. I just started to clean my house and I, I didn't know what I was going to do with the body. Well, that night I drove out eastbound on eight and I, I got off an off-ramp and I went up into the hills with the body in the car and I went out pretty far, kind of a remote area and I buried her in a riverbed, really shallow, not much dirt over her maybe a half a foot of dirt over her. It was a dry riverbed, and then I left her there. I disposed of the rest of the items, all the items, the surfboard bag, the weapons that I used on her to tie her and to hit her and her clothes and everything are over bridges and in and around Phoenix, Arizona.
1: Somewhere in the Arizona area?
3: Yeah, all her clothing and stuff.
1: Do you know exactly where?
3: No, I really don't. I don't.
0: Mark led police to where he had dumped Jessica's body. It was indeed the very same location she had just been found days before. He was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and was held without bond. Police then obtained a warrant and conducted a search of Rogowski's apartment. Inside, they found evidence of Jessica's blood throughout the home, most of it on the downstairs carpet where she had first been struck over the head. Luminol was then sprayed, and an even more violent picture came into focus. Cast-off patterns from the swings of the blunt object were clearly visible. Crime scene technicians then removed parts of the tile. Blood had seeped clear through to the subflooring. The mattress also contained vast amounts of Jessica's blood and had been flipped over in an effort to hide the stains. Mark Rogowski tortured Jessica Bergston before killing her. He verbally accosted her blaming her for ruining his relationship, and took his resentment for brandy out on her before she suffered a slow death. He restrained her to his bed and raped her before putting her body in a surfboard bag. He then suffocated her to death. While being held awaiting his eventual legal proceedings, Ragowski wrote postcards to friends, claiming the event had been kinky sex gone wrong, and that at trial, the truth would quote, all come out and God would prove his innocence. In the eyes of the law, however, Rogowski's distorted and skewed perception wouldn't matter. The state of California, a death penalty state, would decide his fate based on the evidence provided. If Rogowski eventually did go to trial, he might very well be facing execution. In January of 1992, on the advice of his legal counsel, Bragowski would avoid a jury trial and possible death penalty sentence by pleading guilty to first-degree rape and murder in the death of Jessica Bergsten. Before his sentencing on March 6, 1992, Bragowski was given an opportunity to address the court.
2: I've only better glimpse of the family's sorrow, sure. I sincerely hope that they can accept my apology for my carelessness. I'm sorry to Jessica. No one deserves to have a dearly loved one taken from her. I never wanted Jessica to die. And I am deeply sorry.
0: Mark Rogowski was ultimately sentenced to serve 25 years to life in prison for murder, plus an additional six years for the rape of 22-year-old Jessica Bergston all to be served consecutively. He would be eligible for parole several years later. So who was Jessica Bergston? We really hoped to learn more of who she was as a person, as she was surely more than just another number, and clearly more than a victim who was killed by a famous pro skateboarder. Unfortunately, that’s just how the media seemed to paint this story at the time. We tried to reach out to Brandy McLean for comment, Brigowski’s first intended victim who thankfully got away. We never did hear back from Brandy. What we do know is that Jessica was a lively, fun, compassionate, and loving 22-year-old young woman. She wasn’t afraid to take chances, travel, and by all accounts, lived her life to the absolute fullest. It's just unfortunate that she happened to take a chance on Mark when they decided to hang out back in 1991. It's heartbreaking that this individual was robbed of a future by a selfish egomaniac who decided to end her life for no substantial reason other than his own misplaced and misguided anger towards an ex-girlfriend. Mark Rogowski claimed to be a Christian man, one who actively served God, but the only one he ever truly cared about serving was himself. Mark Rogowski instead decided to play God and destroy an innocent woman's life along with her entire family's.
3: I looked up to him as a skater because he was nice and he taught you tricks and when you felt bad, he would always be there to help you.
0: But he was no hero and kids all across the world found out the hard way that their role model was actually a monster. Mark Rogowski is the number, not Jessica. He's now just another barcode in the California state prison system, who truthfully doesn't deserve to be remembered as anything more than that. In February of 2011, Mark Rogowski was denied parole. District Attorney Richard Sachs contested that Rogowski was, quote, an unreasonable risk to society. Members of the Bergston family were present at the hearing, expressing that they too believed Gator should remain behind bars. In this rare interview conducted during his incarceration in 2016, Rogowski speaks of what he refers to as, quote, claiming responsibility. The same year, he was up for his second parole eligibility hearing.
2: You know, I've been one that played the blame game a lot. I mean, the family I grew up in, a single parent family, and I learned, you know, a lot of my self-esteem was based in, you know, what my mom told me I was and, and how I felt. And so um, it related, you know, to me looking for my mother in my relationships and girl- with my girlfriends and marital choices. And so that's kind of where I got my self-esteem with claim responsibility as a tool. Uh, I get my response, I get my self-esteem, my self-empowerment from uh, other sources, from my higher power, from making good choices, from service to others. Just my nature as a human being, you know, and a healthy self-esteem. So I'm taking responsibility for today. I own today. And from my identity as a man was skewed. I thought it meant, what it meant to be a man was to be a womanizer, to have a lot of relationships. And that was all based in my fear, you know, so one way owning responsibility for today, owning my feelings, owning my fears, is is taking care of myself, learning how to take care of myself. So it doesn't take 50 years to learn who I am as a man and and how I should treat women and, and other people that mean a lot to me.
0: Whether or not Mark Rogowski is remorseful and has in fact been rehabilitated within the Department of Corrections isn't for us to decide. Again, it would be up to the state of California to make that determination. Ultimately, it was decided that he was not fit for parole. And he was denied yet again. But he would keep trying. And in 2019, the unthinkable happened. Mark Gator Rogoski has been locked up longer than he's been a free man. Despite a passionate statement from the victim's father, Rogowski is now set to be released. The board said it granted parole in part because of a new law last year that gives added leniency to people who commit crimes under the age of 26. It cites studies that the brain isn't fully developed. While parole had been granted, it wasn't yet final. And before Rogowski would be released, the district attorney appealed the board's decision to California State Governor Gavin Newsom. Here is District Attorney Richard Sachs speaking on the state's appeal. We feel the decision did not adequately take into account the grave public safety concerns posed by this inmate. We think he still represents a threat especially to women. Any man who could take a 22-year-old girl that he didn't really know and take out his rage at his girlfriend breaking up at him onto this 22-year-old girl and then proceed to torture, rape, and murder her is going to be a very dangerous man that should stay in prison. Here we are again for the third hearing
1: too early, and we're going to be advocating very strongly that his parole be denied.
0: Governor Newsom ultimately sided with the DAs in this case, and Mark Gator Rogowski was not granted release from prison. Before Rogowski's fourth parole hearing scheduled for May of 2021, San Diego County District Attorney Summer Steffen spoke on the importance in the fight of keeping this convicted murderer behind bars.
1: We just don't believe that uh, that he should be released. He poses a risk to the community, especially to women uh, and vulnerable women. Jessica was 22. Um, she wasn't just murdered. She was murdered in a terrible, cruel way. She was suffocated, she was beaten, and she was raped. Uh, And so this is an especially heinous crime, and this is why we are opposing parole. We don't believe that he's been rehabilitated. Um, What happens is that they look at his history while in prison. While in prison, there are not vulnerable women. So that is not really a conclusive test for us. It is whether he's ready for release out in the public where there are people uh, that need protection.
0: Mark Rogowski was denied parole again for a fourth time. His fifth parole suitability hearing is scheduled for March of 2023. He is currently serving out his sentence at the Donovan State Prison in San Diego, California. No doubt surrounded by concrete that was made using the very same materials as the skateboard parks outside that he once dominated.